All right, so thank you for coming. Uh, today, the, the, um, this class is uh, called Our Appetites for Destruction. This is a series, series called um, The Gospel in Unlikely Places. And I, um, I kind of got into this class because I, uh, David Zoll has written a new book um, called uh, Mess of Help, The Crucified Soul of Rock and Roll. So he looks at where you can kind of see themes of the gospel and different rock and roll artists, and one of which is Guns N' Roses. And I, I love Guns N' Roses in late elementary school and in middle school. And one of my great regrets is I've never seen them in concert. Have have made it to Motley Crue four times and uh, and Def Leppard three times. If you're uh, if you're you know a heavy metal's hair band hard rock fan, um, but never made it to Guns N' Roses. So um, so anyhow. I, uh, when this book came out, I started looking at the Appetite. I, li- I was listening to the Appetite for Destruction album all the way through and started to hear this, con- this interesting theme uh, in the album. And in the album, uh, I'll talk about this in a bit, but the theme is how you know, we have an appetite for destruction. Um, you know, that's another way of saying original sin. Here's Mr. Guns N' Roses himself. <laughs> <laughs> A good sermon, good sermon, Joe. Um, but anyhow, so that, that's the question we're going to look at is why do consequences have little ability to prevent sin? That's the question we're going to look at. I'm going to pray for us and we'll get started. All right, Jesus, thanks for loving us. Thanks for dying for our sins. Um, thanks for giving us the Holy Spirit. I pray, pray this class would be useful. I pray that, it would, um, that you would encourage us. pray you glorify yourself. I pray that we'd be sanctified and given, uh, given life, joy, peace, hope, and love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so the question we're looking at is, why is it that the threat of consequence has little ability to deter sin? Um, uh, you know, you're kind of like, well, I, you know, it's some, and sometimes it does. You know, there were certain things that, you know, they, that generally tends to be the way that, uh, that uh, the world tends to steer kids away from bad behavior, is if we tell them the consequences then um, if we tell them the consequences, then they're not going to do it, right? If we tell them all the effects of drugs, or we tell them how bad smoking is, or we tell them, you know, the dangers of drinking and how if you start drinking when you're 16, you're 10 times more likely to be an alcoholic than a person who waits till they're 21. That's a fact. Is, that, is, any, is any teenager deterred by that? Not really, no. Uh, so why is it that the threat of consequences has very little power to deter our sin? You may be like, well, I don't know, kind of for me, but think about this, texting and driving. I mean, texting and driving is crazy, you know? If you get a, you know, the buzz in your pocket and, you're, you know, you're going, oh, I wonder what that is. You kind of take a look. I mean, you're, you might as well be driving drunk. I mean, it's very, it's really dangerous. Um, but I don't know about you, but when I feel the buzz in my pocket, I, I can't help myself. I'm always, and that's why when I drive the church van, I give my, I'll very often will give my phone to the intern sitting in the seat next to me so I don't have access to my phone. Um, or speeding. There's somebody who got a speeding ticket this week, $200. For just a normal speeding ticket through Kaaba Heights, but I mean, does anyone here drive the speed limit? Yeah, it's, it's pretty. It's, it's not necessarily. It's, it's it's a little bit more dangerous, but it's also you know they're expensive to get a ticket for your insurance and your ticket, but we still do it. You know, the threat of consequence doesn't have a whole lot of power. Um, how about this? I know that eating ice cream or eating sugary cereal before I go to bed is a really bad idea. You know, I'm 35. The metabolism is really slowing down. I've been on a diet, and last night I you know, kind of done well during the day. And I'm like, don't eat the cinnamon toast crunch. 
Don't eat it. Don't do it. It's a terrible idea. Don't do it right before you go to sleep. I mean, it's you've made it all the way. It's 10, it's 10 after 10. You're going to bed in 20 minutes. Couldn't help myself. Couldn't help myself, folks. I ate the cinnamon. Sorry, Connor. I ate the cinnamon toast. We've been on a team diet together. And uh, I'll just say that Connor has lost uh, 15 pounds and I have no, 19. 15 pounds. I've lost about four. Anyhow. <laughs> and so, uh, so yeah, just the threat of consequence doesn't have power to deter that. And these are kind of, you know, more silly examples, but then we have really serious examples of this. You know, smoking cigarettes. I mean, it is. Take a health class and, well, every, every you know, threat, every, every you know, potential cause of death, whether it's like heart attack or stroke or cancer, they're like, the number one thing to do is don't smoke cigarettes, right? Look, I've, I, in college, you know, you're around a lot of smart people. And I would kind of go to all these smart people colleges to go see my friends. I've never seen so many people smoking cigarettes in my life. That's not to make you feel ashamed if you're a cigarette smoker, but you can attest that the threat of consequence has very little power to, uh, to change our behavior. It's true with alcohol. We see it with addiction. It's true with pornography. Um, and, you know, these are all uh, areas where um, there's, there's serious threat of consequence, and people just, we, we as sinners do not have the power to say no. Just knowing that something bad is going to happen is not enough to deter us from acting out. And so, um, so that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at uh, how is it that we gain the power and the strength to say no to sin. And we're going to look at a little bit, start out by looking at the, uh, a couple of the songs from the Appetite for Destruction album, see this theme. Uh, we're going to, you know, maybe take a little right turn to Motley Crue for a little bit. Uh, I know, get excited, get excited. Um, and then we're going to look at the story of Samson. I mean, Samson, holy cow, Samson. Delilah, she's trying to kill you. She's trying to kill you, Samson. <laughs> but Samson just can't help himself. Um, but anyhow, so for those of you who are not, uh, you know, hard rock fans like Sarah Jane and Jody, you know, they can tell you more about Guns N' Roses and how, you know, all, all that. Just a little bit of background information. They're a band that really got their start in the mid, mid-80s. Um, they, uh, re- their first album is one of the most successful rock, out- initial release uh, rock and roll albums of all times, Appetite for Destruction. And a lot of people credit them with reviving rock and roll. Um, because it was starting to, uh, the popular music was starting to go the way of pop rock and, uh, and dance music, and kind of the, the heavy metal, hard rock type sound was starting to decline, and then Guns N' Roses is credited with kind of bringing it back. And so uh, it's an interesting cast of characters uh, that the lead singer is, is very famous, Axl Rose, uh, and he had the, you know, he wore the, the band over his head. Let's see, I think I've got a picture. There you go, there's Axl. Um, and then they had the, the, the really famous guitarist, considered one of the greatest guitarists of all time, Slash. Slash wore this awesome kind of top hat, and he had this big mass of curly hair that kind of draped down over his eyes. You could never see his eyes. He had sunglasses under it. I've never, I still have never seen his eyes. It's, you know, it's, there's, there's some really awesome mystery with Slash. And, um, and anyhow, and so this album, Appetite for Destruction, it's, uh, it says so much, the title. You know, I have an appetite for destruction. That's kind of a, a good way to, to describe our flesh or our sin is that we, uh, by our nature, we naturally want to do the thing that is going to harm us. We naturally want to do the thing that's going to harm us. And, uh, and that's going to, you know, not, not, we're not, you know, all, the thing is all sin has a negative consequence. Uh, the, you know, the wages of sin is death. 
And so you might be like, well, you know, I've told a little white lie. Well, any sin creates separation between you and God, you and your neighbor, you and yourself. It all has relational consequence. And so, um, and so that's, that's our deal. And I think it's really interesting how the, uh, the album cover has the band members with their, you know, kind of signature headwear or glasses or headband, and they, uh, but they're skeletons. It's, you know, it's, it's kind of like symbol of death. And, uh, and anyhow, so to start out here, we're going to listen to one song, and this was the first kind of big song. Uh, this song is called Welcome to the Jungle. If you've ever gone to a sporting event, you've probably heard it before. And um, there's one little part I'm going to have to edit out here. Uh, maybe a couple little parts. But, um, but anyhow, again, what we're looking at with this music and this album is that, um, is that there's this sense of there's something that I want to do. I know that the thing that I want to do is bad. I know that it is destructive. I know that it has negative consequence. And yet I am trapped. I'm, like a, I'm a slave to my sin. And so we're going to see that in this first song, Welcome to the Jungle. Uh, and it, hey, if you want to, you know, if you're going to kind of do, you know, do the little headbang, I'm not going to judge. No one here is going to judge, okay? Uh, and if you're kind of like, why did I come to this class? <laughs> I, we're going to get to the, the to good biblical substance, promise, promise. Good air drum part. Good air drum part. Turn that down for a second. Yeah, okay. All right, sorry. Nope, can't paraphrase. <laughs> Promise. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, that's enough there. Great. Okay. So, uh, you know, you probably can't understand anything he's saying, right? 
Um, but uh, but some of the like some of the lines here. First off, it's like welcome to the jungle. Like you've come to a place of chaos. You've come to a place uh, that is wild and dangerous. And you know some of the like in, in, in a place that promises misery. Welcome to the jungle. It gets worse here every day. Uh, you learn to live like an animal in the jungle where you play. And so he, the the kind of context of the song is they're writing about the streets of L.A. Uh, back in the back in the 1980s, and so one of the first things that said is, uh, you can have anything you want, but you better not take it from me. And so there's this idea of like on the streets of LA, you can have whatever you want, right? Um, and this this image of you learn to live like an animal, kind of like a creature of impulse. You know, you don't, you know, an animal is kind of like animal sees, animal does. Animal wants, animal goes after. Or, you know, it's not rational. It's just kind of a slave to impulse. And so, um, and so then there's this line here, if you've got a hunger, if you, if you've got a hunger for what you see, you'll take it eventually. So if there's something that you see that you want, and, and you, no matter what, you'll take it eventually. And so the, at the end, he, uh, there's a, like a long guitar section there that we're just not going to bother with. But, um, so there's this, this bridge where it says, when you're high, you never, ever want to come down. So he's talking about drugs. And then he comes back, and, he, and this, there's this kind of last statement of the song. This is how it ends. It says, you know where you are. You're in the jungle, baby. You're going to die. Welcome to the jungle. Watch it bring you to your knees, to your knees. Okay? And so that is just really a great description of sin uh, in the sense of um, uh, in our sin, without the grace of God, um, we are creatures of impulse. Uh, we tend to self-destruct, and, and 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 it leads to death, and and not just you know not just physical death, but also emotional, spiritual, relational death, um, in, in all ways, and uh, and it brings you to your knees, right? That's that's what we hope. That's hopefully the work of the Holy Spirit. Our sin brings us to our knees. That's a hope. Anyhow, so that's welcome to the jungle. All right, we're gonna listen to one more song. This one's a little shorter, uh, and this is called Mr. Brownstone. Context of this song is two of the two of the singers um, had heroin addictions, and so they were sitting there with their girlfriends lamenting about their heroin addictions, how they just could not say no to heroin, they could not turn away from it, they were so highly addicted. And so um, this song is called Mr. Brownstone. Uh, I personally did not know this, but uh, Mr. Brownstone apparently is another is a street term for heroin. So, uh, so when he says, we've been dancing with Mr. Brownstone, he's saying we've been using drugs. All right. So, you know.
All right, so um, all right, so you don't you don't have to listen anymore if your ears are about to explode. Um, but so he starts out, and he you know he's kind of basically talking about their normal day as a as a musician. You know, we we get on the bus, we uh, you know the music starts around nine. You know, we get on the stage, and then afterwards we sip, we drink, we're feeling fine. That says we've been dancing with Mr. Brownstone. And then how does he regard Mr. Brownstone? Uh, he uh, he's been knocking, and he won't leave me alone. My sin, my flesh, this addiction, it will not leave me alone. It torments me. And then he says, I used to do a little, but a little wasn't doing, so a little got more and more. I just keep trying to get a little better, say a little better than before. I, I try to get better, but I'm failing, completely failing. And, um, and you see that kind of right now Axel has not gone into his screechy, kind of terrifying voice where he's like, ah! <laughs> But as the song, you know, he's kind of got a more calm voice. But as the song evolves, he goes into Axel, the famous Axel Screechy voice. And it's kind of, and it really does kind of paint the picture of just the torment of sin. The torment of not being able to say no to sin, okay? All right, so now let's go to something redemptive. By the way, I, the, the, you know, there's a song also by Motley Crue. I know a lot of you are probably like, this totally, I mean, Dr. Feelgood, Motley Crue, this totally is that song too. And Dr. Feelgood is about uh, basically your drug dealer. This is also, Motley Crue is an L, a hard rock band, L.A.-based, same time period as Guns N' Roses, 1980s. And, um, and you know, they, their regard for Dr. Feelgood, who is your drug dealer, is he's the one they call Dr. Feelgood. He's the one who'll make you feel all right. He's the one they call Dr. Feelgood. He's going to be your Frankenstein. So he's going to be this person who haunts you, who's like a monster that haunts you. Um, so anyhow, let's go to Jesus. Um, we're going to look at Judges 16, uh, the story of Samson and Delilah and rats. Um, we don't have Bibles. Um, I can put it up on the screen. Uh, let's just do that. Uh, here we go. Great. Let's try this. Uh, I'll make it a little bigger. No, that's not what I want. Okay. All right, is that helpful at all? Can anybody read that? Okay, great. All right, so the story of Samson and Delilah. Um, how many of you? How many of you? Are, how many of you are familiar with Samson and Delilah? This story. How many of you have studied it? Like you've really kind of gotten into the guts of it. All right, phenomenal text. Okay, I'm super excited about it. Uh, Judges 14 through 16 is uh, it talks about Samson. This is in the book of Judges. And the context of this in the Bible is in the Old Testament. Um, you had, you know, bef- before the Judges period was the Israelites were in slavery in Egypt, and they were released, and they traveled in the wilderness. And then they, you know, they had the promised land that God had promised Abraham. They went into the promised land. And there was this period uh, before there was a king, uh, you know, King uh, Saul, King David, where there was no king in Israel. And uh, God was supposed to be the king of Israel. And the book of Judges is an amazing book because it basically, the, the key verse in it is there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what he saw fit in his own eyes. That's the, the key verse of the whole book. And you see a culture where they constantly, the Israelites constantly will start to worship false gods. They'll naturally self-destruct. They'll be conquered. And God will send a judge who will redeem them and rescue them. And these judges have all kinds of, you know, they, they, they redeem them in different kinds of ways. Um, uh, but Samson was a great warrior, and the, the group that had conquered them or that was really kind of the thorn in their side 
was the Philistines. And Samson was, was the Philistines' worst nightmare. And so, um, so anyhow, Samson was a Nazarite. And a Nazarite um, was a person who was kind of, their life was consecrated to God, was set aside and separate for God. And, uh, and so that, was, that would happen in one of two ways. Either that person themselves decided, I'm gonna, I want to be a Nazarite, or before they were born, the parents said, you're going to be a Nazarite. And so that's the case of John the Baptist and Samson. And so when I say set apart, there were a couple of characteristics. They were very committed to moral and religious purity. They were not to drink wine at all. Um, they were not to eat certain foods, foods of the vine. Um, they, uh, they were never to touch a dead body. And they were the, the key thing, the key symbol that you were a Nazarite is that you would not cut your hair. You let your hair grow long. And what that signified, and uh, some would say, Matthew Henry says, that that signified that uh, you had a distaste for the sensual world. For the things of the world, you were just, you did not care. You, were, you, were, uh, you wanted to remove yourself from that. But it also signified that you were set apart. The word Nazarite means separate. You were separate for God. Almost, you think about like a, a monk. Almost like a monk. But they actually could marry. Um, and, uh, but anyhow, so, so we have Samson, who, who is a, a Nazarite, and who is a judge for Israel. And so the story starts, it says, and we know this, a lot of us know the story. The story is that the, the Philistines are trying to kill him, and they, they pay off this beautiful woman named Delilah, who's very seductive, to find out what is Samson's secret. And three times he lies to her, and finally the fourth time he gives her the secret. The Philistines, uh, you know, maim him, they gouge out his eyes, and they imprison him. And then at the end of his life, Samson, um, you know, kind of slick and, you know, pulls down the columns of a building and it falls on thousands of, of Philistines and a lot of their ruling power. And, and he kind of, kill, he himself is a martyr. He dies in the, in the deal. But that's kind of the story here. But we're going to go through it now line by line. Judges 16. Samson went to, Samson went to Gaza and there he saw a prostitute and he went with her. So he slept with a prostitute. So we can already see Samson not going down a good path here as a Nazarite, right? It's like, hey, the Catholic, the monk was walking down the street and saw a prostitute and he had sex with her. You know, just a detail. Um, anyhow, and so it goes on to say, um, the Gazites were told Samson has come and they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, uh, kept quiet all night saying, let us wait till the morning and then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and pulled them up bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is the front of Hebron. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. Um, hard to believe that you know, this was the kind of uh, you know, true biblical love uh, that's portrayed in, say, Song of Songs, but anyhow, he loved a woman named Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, seduce him and see where his great strength lies. And by what by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. And we will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. Okay, so now one thing to note here, guys, is when we see pictures of Samson, we, we think of Samson as this big, strong guy, right? Well, if Samson were a big, strong man, they, it wouldn't be a secret. They wouldn't have to ask, like, where does his strength come from? Like, we know that his strength came from the Lord. His strength came as, as one who was dedicated to the Lord, his life was committed to, to God, and so consequently had the power of God in him. We know that his power came from God. 
he was probably just a humble looking guy. I mean, he was probably just as, you know, average as Cameron Cole walking down the beach. And, you know, they're, they're, they're having to ask, where does his strength come from? And so, um, so anyhow, uh, so they, you know, Delilah, and by the way, you're gonna see everyone here has an idol. Delilah is all about the money. It's all about the cash. And so, um, and so, so Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Samson said to her, I know, I know, really, quite a pickup line, quite a pickup line, right? Uh, Samson said to her, if they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like other men. And then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven bowstrings that had not been tied, and she bound him with them. Now she had been lying in ambush in an inner chamber. She said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Okay? So it is... Oh, my bad. Thanks, Jim. It is clear... It is clear that Delilah is bad news. It is clear that this is not a girl that Samson needs to get involved with. Right? Let's keep on going. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber. But he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. All right, so strike two. I don't know. I don't know about Delilah. I mean, I don't know. Maybe she's all right. Okay, you can see here, Samson, you know, you see this at the very beginning. What's the first thing he does? He sleeps with a prostitute, okay? So we can see that women are an idol for Samson. Women are a big sin struggle for him. And, um, and, and he is, he, we can see here that he is totally powerless. I mean, this woman is saying to him, hey, Samson, Tell me how we can kill you, right? Tell me how we can destroy you. And Samson is so intoxicated with his idol that he is just continuing to walk down the line. The consequences are in his face, right? In his face, and he does not have the power to say no. All right, round three. Then Delilah said to Samson, until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, if you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with a pen, then I shall become weak and like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web, and she made them tight with a pen and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he woke from his sleep and pulled away the pen, the loom, and the web. All right, and so, so we can see he's kind of walking, getting closer down the path, right? Now, you know, he's, he gave her these two phony reasons. Now he said something about his hair. Now he didn't say cut off my hair, but he did say, you know, so, so he, is, he is being seduced uh, by sin to his own self-destruction, right? Uh, and then finally, she says, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. So, you know, and the thing is, it's like his idol is not coming through for him. 
uh, you know, he, he, he wants her to love him. He wants that. And she is not satisfied. She is, she is uh, pestering him to, to know the secret of his strength. And he is, you know, and you're looking at Samson and you're like, Samson, you are so stupid, right? You're so stupid, Samson. Get a clue. <laughs> Driving down the street. Phone rings. Oh, text message. Hmm. Oh, hmm. Well, I'm at a light. I'll just do voice thing. Yeah, I mean, how stupid are we? How stupid are we? We pick up our phone when we're driving. <laughs> how, how stupid are we in all, in all kinds of decisions that we know we make um, or things that we're tempted to do? And yet, we're just like Samson, right? We're just like Samson. And so, so here, comes, here it comes. Um, and and, and the, the key thing here is he gives his heart away. Gives his heart away, away from the Lord, and we're going to see here when he, he tells her, he's, you know, cut off my hair. He is now, you know, his, his commitment to the Lord, his consecration to the Lord has ended. He's, he's, you know, and we'll see what happens here. So he told her all his heart, and he said to her, a razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God for my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. And when Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines. Uh, the lords of the Philistines. Sorry. Uh, and saying, "Come upon, come upon again, for he has told me all his heart." Then the lord of the Philistines came upon, up to her and brought the money in her in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees. And she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as I have at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. Okay, so Samson has been destroyed. His strength is gone. Here comes, now there's going to be a big turn. We see Samson's decline. Now we're going to see kind of his renewal, like his rebirth. And the next thing it says, verse 22, it says, but the hair of his head began to grow again. All right, so that's a, that's a, the, the, the writer um, the writer who is God, but there's a human writer. The Bible is 100% God and 100% man. Um, you know, has this as kind of a foreshadowing that the hair began to grow again because we know that the hair, you know, the hair is there's a it is he literally has hair. He literally has long hair. He's literally called to keep it that way as a Nazarite. And the hair is also metaphorical for his commitment to the Lord. Right? We see that he forsakes the Lord when he says, "Hey, you can cut off my hair." Um, but we see now if the hair is starting to grow again, that detail is not accidental. It is, you know, to say that his commitment to the Lord is starting to be renewed. All right. And so, so here it says, now the Lord of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, our God has given our enemy into our hand the ravager of our country. He has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, and by the way, think about 
Samson now compared to the Philistines. Look at what they're about to do, okay? They said, call Samson that he may entertain us. All right, what have they said? He has killed thousands of us. And so they're like, hey, let's go get Samson out of the prison and let's let him entertain us, right? I mean, you know, he has destroyed us dozens of times, but this one time he failed and we gouged his eyes, so we're clean, right? Everything's fine. So they called Samson out of prison and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. Uh, And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. And now the house was full of men and women, and the Lord of the Philistines were there, and the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. So they're just making, they're, they're mocking Samson. They have a little boy guarding him. Okay, so they're, they're mocking him in that way, but they're also incredibly arrogant and incredibly stupid, right? This big, strong guy who's been your mortal enemy, put him in prison, lock him up, put 20 men around him and never let him out, right? That's what they should have done. But here they, they are, they're arrogant and stupid, and they have brought him out. Here's what Samson does. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once. O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. And so the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him with Zorah and Stella in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He was a judge for 20 years. All right, so, so we see this kind of renewal of strength in Samson, okay? And what we're going to do to close it out is we're going to look at three things, three before and afters that we can apply to our own life as we have weakness, you know, when we face sin. Um, First, let's look at this. Samson, before, does not have physical boundaries and protections, and afterwards he does. If you look back into the story, every time Samson goes into Philistia, bad things happen. He has moral failures. He touches a dead person, he sleeps with women, he gets drunk on wine, every time. And so it's the kind of thing where if Samson's friends, you're like, hey, Samson, just don't go over there. Like, stay away from there, right? Well, this is not by his own doing, but afterwards he can't see. Like, his big weakness is women. And so he has this limitation. He can't see anymore. And so he really can't fall into this sin because there's a boundary and a limitation. And so the first kind of practical thing for us is, you know, if there are things in our life that we do not have power over, that we struggle with, we should, we should physically eliminate them from our life. That's not going to fix the problem, but it is a biblical principle. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says, flee sexual immorality. Flee means to physically remove yourself. Uh, Jesus says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eyes cause you to sin, gouge it off. Jesus is speaking hyperbolically. No one needs to go home and gouge out their eyes or cut off their hands. But he's saying, you know, go to the measures that you need to, to, to physically remove yourself from temptation. If you struggle with texting and driving, put your phone in the trunk when you drive, so that you physically cannot put your hands on it. If you have struggle with alcohol, then, uh, uh, you know, then don't go to a bar. If you are a teenager and you're trying not to drink underage, don't go out to the Pines off Overton Road, where we all know that you drink. Don't go out there, because we know you're going to do it. You're, you know you're going to fall into temptation. If you and your girlfriend, you and your boyfriend, trying to avoid, you know, 
going too far and taking off each other's clothes and sending it that way. Don't, uh, don't hang out in the basement with the lights out at 11 o'clock at night when mom and dad are, are asleep, okay? Physically remove sin, the temptation to sin. And that can go as far as like, oh, my family, all we do is look at our tablets. Well, maybe, maybe or all we do is watch TV, we never talk, well, cancel cable. Uh, get rid of your tablets. Like, do what it takes to physically remove that temptation. That's a biblical thing. Uh, second thing, we see that before uh, Samson walks in arrogance, he walks in his own strength, and afterwards, Samson walks in weakness, he walks in humility. Um, you know, he, think about this. He is so confident in his own strength. And, you know, it's not, he's clearly not confident in the strength of the Lord. His strength is coming from the Lord, but obviously he's not attributing it to the Lord. And he's like, oh, yeah, you know, Delilah is this woman who is clearly trying to kill me. And, um, and I'm, he's just, he's arrogant and he's stupid. Like, ha, they're not going to, they're never going to get me. They're never going to get me, right? I'll, I'll just let her, let her over and over again try to ambush me and let these people try to come and attack me. And it's not going to happen to me, right? He's stupid and he's arrogant. The Philistines are the same way. We kind of went over that. They let they let this they they are so arrogant in their one victory over Samson that they let him out of prison, <laughs> and, and make themselves very vulnerable to this guy who's been their worst enemy, and um and so then you see this change, uh, in Samson where he starts to walk in humility. Um, he allows a boy to lead him. Uh, that would be in that context that'd be very humbling for Samson, this mighty man. That he's asking a little boy, will you please put my hands here and there? Um, and then you see afterwards, too, that he asked the Lord for help. Lord, like, give me strength. Uh, remember me. That's, the, well, that's really the line of humility. He says, God, remember me. Basically, I know that I've sinned. I know that I've forsaken you. And, and you see here the gospel of remember me. I'm a sinner. I don't deserve it, but please be gracious to me. And when he calls out to him. And so you see that, um, yeah, you see a penitent heart. And so, you know, a second thing is, you know, for us, we really are, I mean, I know this, I am as a sinner, we really are arrogant about our ability to say no to sin. You know, we really, we really think that we're okay, I kind of got this. Um, you know, any day we're not walking in the Spirit, it's, it's a statement of arrogance that, um, it's a statement of arrogance that I can make life on my own, I can handle life on my own, I don't need the Lord. And so what we really need is we need, uh, you know, we need daily confession of sin, daily admission of weakness, and, um, yeah, we, we, to have strength over sin requires an admission that you have no power over sin without the strength of the Lord. So that's the second thing. And the last thing is we see that Samson is walking in, beforehand, he's walking in his own power and the power of idols. And then at the end, when he is able to pull down the building, uh, he's walking in the power of God. And notice, you know, it says the kind of the, the statement about his, the, the, the first statement, that his strength is being renewed, is it says his hair started to grow again. All right, so that was not a um, that was not like it all spontaneously came back, right? Uh, that was a process. That was a process that his hair was growing back, and that's saying to us his strength in the Lord was coming back as well. Um, he um, he calls to the Lord. He says, "Lord, strengthen me." Um, and so we can see now he's turning his his eyes back towards the Lord. That's where he's seeking his power. And this is not a one-time thing. It's, it's, a, it's a gradual, it's a process. Spurgeon um, wrote some commentary on this. this is Spurgeon's 19th century Baptist minister in London, probably the greatest preacher of the 19th century, uh, one of the greatest preachers of all time. And he said of Samson, he said, 
It's not that his hair made him strong, but that his hair was the symbol of his consecration and was his pledge of God's favor to him. While his hair was untouched, he was a consecrated man. As soon as he had cut it away, he was no longer perfectly consecrated, and then his strength departed from him. Then he goes on to say, The Old Testament biographies were never written for our imitation, but they were written for our instruction. Upon this one matter, what a volume of force there is in such lessons. See, says God, what faith can do. Here is a man, Samson, full of infirmities, a sorry fool, yet through his childlike faith he lives. The just shall live by faith. He has many sad flaws and failings, but his heart is right towards God. He does does trust in the Lord, and he does give himself up as a consecrated man to the Lord's service, and therefore he is saved. I look upon Samson's case as a great wonder, put in scripture for encouragement for great sinners. And so, um, and so, yeah, he points to this matter of faith. And so, just to kind of close it up here, uh, close it up, um, this, this verse, uh, Ephesians 6.10, I think is one of the greatest verses in the entire Bible. And it speaks exa- into exactly what we're talking about. Um, uh, it's, um, it, the verse goes, Be strong in the Lord, and in his mighty power, okay? And so we're talking about having strength to say no to sin, right? Okay, so first off, be strong. In Greek, this is a present passive imperative. It's a lot of peace. Um, but it says so much because an imperative means that you're taking action. You're, there's, you're being commanded to do something. But, uh, but it's passive. You're, you're, being, you're being told to be passive to be reliant, to be resting in the Lord. And that it's present means that's a continuous thing. It's a continuous verb. It's not a one-time thing, but a continuous thing. And, um, and so, you know, Gil Cracky talks about the passive active of Christianity, how what it is to live like a Christian is to the, the passive active, the you know, constant repentance of turning away from self-reliance and turning to trust in the Lord. And, and then the phrase there, in the Lord, when you see in the Lord, that's one of the most loaded, rich terms in the New Testament. It's the equivalent to saying in Christ, uh, which points to union with Christ. And so that is the reality that Christ is in us and that we are in Christ. And it means, so, you know, you think about in like John, John, uh, where John, Jesus says, abide in me. Abiding me is kind of the action of, of living out your union with Christ. It's, the, it's synonymous with being in the spirit. Paul uses that terminology. Being in the spirit, abiding in Christ, Exactly the same thing, really, um, with a few theological nuances. And so the key thing is that for us, you know, in thinking about having power over sin, having strength to say no to the things we know that will destroy us, is it is a lifestyle. It is a lifestyle of humble reliance on God and of, uh, of life-giving relationship with Christ in the Lord, in Christ. And, uh, and that, is, that is the answer. That's why what would Jesus do bracelets are not, not of much value. Because when it comes time for the temptation, if, if the, you know, it's not about being morally reminded of what's right, because we know that's not going to help us. Uh, it's too late if you have to pull out your what would Jesus do bracelet. You need to have been in the Spirit, strengthened in the Lord as a lifestyle leading up to the moment of temptation. So that you have you have strength to say no, and that that's the process. And last thing, you know, this sounds a lot like it sounds like a lot like a recovery program. 
And the book Grace and Addiction by John Zoll is just, it's just tremendous. Uh, it looks at, you know, uh, the 12 steps of, of uh, recovery um, as, you know, as a Christian lifestyle. And you think, you know, look at this. We admitted we were powerless over whatever our sin was. So this admission of powerlessness, this weakness that, and humility that we see with Samson that we need too. We came to believe that only a power greater than ourselves could restore our sanity. We looked to the Lord. Uh, we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to God, uh, over the care of God as we understood him. Forget the understood him part. Um, but, but yeah, and so, and so you can kind of see these building blocks of what it means to walk in the spirit, to walk in the strength of the Lord, to, to abide in Christ. And uh, it's a lifestyle. It's a, it's a sinner's lifestyle of recovery. So uh, I'll pray for us and let you go because I'm way over time. All right, Lord, thanks for, uh, thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit. And thank you that our sins are all forgiven. And that when we sin, uh, you are faithful and just to forgive us for all our sins and all unrighteousness, Lord. And um, pray that we would know uh, the joy and the strength of being in Christ and abiding in you. I ask these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen.